If I were to tell you that in April of 2020, less than a year from now, Andrew Cuomo would be fighting for his political life while Ron DeSantis sat in the catbird seat, you probably would have told me I was nuts. After all, April 2020 marked the meteoric rise of Andrew Cuomo to national stardom and also saw Ron DeSantis cast in the role of the COVID villain against whom Andrew Cuomo would be pitted. Now, less than a year later, their fortunes have completely reversed. This isn't necessarily a Democrats bad, Republicans good type of thing. Although, in this particular case, some of the luck that plays into the destiny of these two men is determined by partisan affiliations and the needs of the moment. Rather, I would argue that Cuomo and DeSantis demonstrate a reality that is often overlooked in politics. Your political destiny is not entirely in your own control. You can do things that will help you succeed or fail in politics, but there are two factors that play a particular role in determining one's fickle fortune in the political realm, luck and character. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. If you have a podcast provider that offers rating options, please give us a five-star rating as this will help others to find our podcast. Five-star ratings help us in rising up those rankings. We do not have ads, and I do not pay for Facebook advertising. Number one, because we don't necessarily have the, the marketing budget for that. And number two, because I just something feels squicky about paying for clicks. So that's not a thing that, that we do. And I've made that as a deliberate choice. I have made the choice that I'm not going to start turning this podcast into something that's clickbaity. I do it because I like it and I don't necessarily want to start chasing ad revenue or, you know, do, doing things that I'm, I think are just going to get, get more eyeballs. And certainly I'm not going to pay for that. That said, I would appreciate it. If, if you like this podcast, you can give us that rating. You can pass the word, tell your friends about it, etc., etc. The more eyeballs we get on this, the more views we get, the more likely RSG is to see it as a plus and to say, yeah, Dr. Nolte, this is a good use of your time. So if you can promote this podcast, it will help. It do, and it does, in fact, help. The, the, the analytics are things that we can track. And so, you know, I want to be able to keep doing this the way I've been doing this. I like to be able to give you content that is what I think, that is not trying to play to an audience, that's not you know, trying to, to play things for clicks, that's not paying for, you know, ad revenue on social media where also we don't have to interject an ad every every 30 seconds. Although if I was going to advertise for anything, I probably would advertise for Built Bar, which is this protein bar that uh, I've seen advertised on a bunch of podcasts and they are they are really tasty. They're on the pricey end, but oh my goodness, the uh, the the flavor, the consistency is good and all of that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for a good protein bar, then that's <laughs> that's a good one, but as of right now, 
We don't have any, any advertising on this podcast. I'm okay with that. But I am asking you, the listeners, to pass this on to friends that you think might find this interesting. Please raise the profile of this. And I don't want to have to start turning into a, a um, social media chasing entity where you have to constantly have uh, a monkey hitting refresh on the page over and over again to try to increase the number of clicks. So that is just a, a shameless plug for you to please promote my podcast. So all of that being said, oh, by the way, you can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook through the Regent University Robertson Schools page, where you can also find exceptional and exemplary content from my colleagues. So what I wanted to do today is talk a little bit about fortune in politics. There's this concept of fortune or fortuna goes back to kind of Greek and Roman days when Fortuna was actually a goddess. And she was a goddess who was seen as sort of controlling luck. But the Greeks had this idea, certainly, that she was fickle. Fickle fortune was something, that the, you know, the, the Romans as well. But there's kind of this interplay in Greek and Roman thought. And you see this actually carry on you know, into, into Christianity to an extent, particularly among our greatest playwrights. I'm thinking here of Shakespeare, where luck is a factor. But character also plays a role, right? So if you think of, of sort of Greek tragedies or even Shakespearean tragedies, it's this combination of luck, but also character. And this particularly is true in Shakespeare, right? So if you, compa if you compare and contrast Oedipus with Macbeth, doing a little lit crit here because we're a, a multi-purpose podcast, right? So a little literary criticism. So Oedipus has bad luck, right? He falls afoul of the laws of the gods by accident and pays for it. To, to a certain extent. Macbeth, his ambition is his, his, is his folly. It's the thing that brings him, him down. And so it's, it's character-driven. He does have some bad luck as well, but a lot of it is character. And so Shakespeare, for his tragic heroes, often character is destiny. And Shakespeare always wants to point to sort of a character flaw. Uh, and that character flaw, inevitably, in the outworking of things, brings them down. I think it's a combination. When you start talking about politics, I think both the, the sort of Greek model of tragedy and the Shakespearean have some play here. Okay, so dumb luck plays a role in this, in both the rise and the fall of political fortunes, but so also just character. And character really is destiny. Okay, if you think about the Trump administration, okay, it is luck, it is fortuna, that for the first three years, yeah, it's fickle fortune, that Trump doesn't have a major international crisis that explodes on his watch that he has to deal with, that puts him in the crusher. But then, of course, the, the coronavirus emerges, and and you know we see the strengths and weaknesses of Trump as a leader and his character demonstrated vividly in coronavirus, in the election, and then also in the, in the election loss, uh, we see aspects of his character. And again, this goes back to that whole stolen election question is actually irrelevant in determining Trump's uh, fortune. Okay, let me say that again: it's irrelevant in determining the political future and the fortune of Donald Trump. People have had elections stolen from them and have come back to be president later. In fact, I can think of three people who had elections stolen from them, arguably. Andrew Jackson in the corrupt bargain of 1824, where John Quincy Adams, who finished fourth in the voting, actually ends up picked by the House. Now, that's not a steal, although if you're a populist, right, if you're somebody who believes that the person who wins the popular vote 
uh, the person who gets the most votes should be the president. By the way, that's the implicit logic of everybody who claims that the election was stolen. Um, that Jackson had it stolen. Okay. Um, Samuel Tilden in the corrupt bargain of 1876. Uh, no, that's incorrect. Uh, 1870. You know, it is 1876. In which Rutherford B. Hayes is made president in exchange for ending Reconstruction, despite the fact that Tilden has a slight advantage in the Electoral College and the popular vote going into the election. And then the third one is Richard Nixon. Um, there's pretty good evidence that, and this this would buy, be by, you know, the rules in play in 2020. Uh, Nixon had the election stolen. Um, votes were forged in Illinois and Texas that we know of. I've been over this and over this again and again. Uh, Nixon had pretty good evidence. He, de he declined to pursue it. He declined to pursue that case. Two out of those three men went on to be president subsequently. Andrew Jackson and Richard Nixon both went on to be president subsequent to having elections, quote unquote, stolen from them. Okay, why? Because neither of them acted in a way that would have torn down, down the system or tried to tear down the system. Jackson... Uh, accepts that he is not to be made president, but fulminates against it for the next four years, stirs up the populists, and wins a crushing victory in 1828. Okay, Nixon accepts it, doesn't make it a huge deal, uh, keeps his powder dry in, in 1964, and runs again and, and wins, the overwhelmingly wins the Republican nomination, and then the presidency in 1968. So I think that it is less likely that Trump, that Donald Trump will be president in 2024 because of the way he acted in 2020 after the election. So even if you think the election was stolen from him, and I'm still not convinced by the evidence that has been presented of this claim. Um, I'm convinced there were irregularities as there generally are. I'm not convinced that there were sufficient irregularities to change the outcome unless you buy the theory that um, 10 million votes were changed by voting machines. And you would need some very compelling evidence of that, that I'm not sure that which has been pre presented meets that compelling evidentiary standard. And I think if it did, it would be hard for me to believe that at least one of the approximately 140 judges that Donald Trump appointed in his administration would not be willing to take a look at that, were that evidence presented in a court of law. So even if you buy though, that the argument was that the the argument that the election was stolen, the way Trump handled things post-election was such that it seems to me very unlikely that he will ever be president again. And that is an aspect of character, right? So luck, fortune, if you will, says we have the coronavirus in 2020. Character is what causes Trump to respond in the way he did, both during the initial months of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, with some pluses and some minuses there, but obviously I would say um, sufficient minuses that at a minimum people were just not willing to put up with his antics for the next four years. Um, and then after, in the aftermath of, of, an, of a close contested election where he did better than polling predicted, where he did better and Republicans did far better than any observer at the time, except for Robert Cahaley, the guy who ran Trafalgar. Nobody else predicted the Republicans to do as well as they in fact did.
Okay. And yet the reality is that um, they did. It was very close. It was a very closely contested election. And char character then came into play in those circumstances. So let's go back to the two examples that I mentioned in the outset of this podcast, Andrew Cuomo and Ron DeSantis. Okay. Fortune and character determine the initial approaches that these two men take to the coronavirus in their states. And some of the fortune involved here, some of the luck, involves systemic factors and also decisions made by other people. Okay, Ron DeSantis is in Florida. Florida has much stronger regional governments and counties than many other states. So DeSantis from the get-go is somewhat more restricted in what he can do than other governors. Um, Andrew Cuomo, on the other hand, is somewhat forced into an active stance because very quickly in the first few weeks of, of the pandemic, it becomes clear that Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, is completely out of his depth and that somebody has to come in and take over the management of the COVID crisis in New York because de Blasio is just absolutely mismanaging everything horrendously. And it is important to keep in mind that as badly as Andrew Cuomo it now looks like has handled things in, in some respects, and let's be very clear on this, he has made some egregious errors. That is still probably considerably like 100% better than how Bill de Blasio would have and in fact did handle COVID. Bill de Blasio was outright engaging in active religious discrimination by any standard by any reasonable First Amendment standard against Jews in his very prejudicial statements and conduct toward them early in the pandemic. Uh, Bill de Blasio's messaging was incredibly inconsistent. He did not govern with a sure, uh, sure hand. And he essentially um, had already lost the support of people in New York City before he started and then you know doubled down and handled things in such an egregious fashion that I think had Cuomo left de Blasio to his own devices, we would be looking at much more economic damage and a higher death toll in New York City than what we actually saw, right? So Cuomo, to a certain extent, is, is forced into the position of micromanaging what's happening in some of these regions because the, the most significant hotspot of his state is managed by a complete incompetent. Um, and I, I think that is, is a fair thing to say about Bill de Blasio. He is an absolute utter incompetent. Now, Cuomo's not incompetent. Um, he has other character flaws that, as we will see as we discuss how this played out, impact his his uh, political fortune in some very negative ways. But I don't think we can say that Andrew Cuomo is actually an incompetent. Um, Bill de Blasio most certainly is. Okay, So you have this, this dynamic where Cuomo has to um, take the lead early, and people in New York City notice a difference right away, right? They notice that Cuomo is, is calm, he's sure-handed, he, he gives these briefings that are good, you know, helps when your brother's in the media. But also keep in mind, the, the center of the media universe is in New York City. The vast majority of media folks live in New York or live in D.C. And what's the first thing that happens in COVID? Everybody bubbles up, right? Everybody's in their bubble. So, so much of the elite media is centered in New York and New York City, that Cuomo looks like a hero to them because he, he saved lives in New York City just by taking over from de Blasio's incompetent management. Okay, so that sets the, the conditions of this. 
add to the fact that Chris Cuomo is working as, a, as an anchor at CNN, and add to that the fact that the elite media is in desperate search for leadership, uh, and, and particularly leadership that can contrast with Trump in a way that Trump can be made to look bad and Cuomo can be made to look good. And to be fair to Cuomo, his briefings are sort of more focused and coherent than Trump. Uh, Trump is trying to sort of ruthlessly boost and, and be a, a sort of a booster and a cheerleader and will we'll be out of this soon, right? And I think partially because Trump is concerned about the impact this is all going to have on the election. And, um, you know, there's something in his, in his uh, character. And we go back again to this idea of character and fortune coming together to form political destiny. There's something in Trump's character that he doesn't want to tell people they have to do hard things, right? He's a salesman. He's been selling his brand for decades. And you don't sell people on things by telling them, no, you have to do this thing. It's going to be really, really hard, but it's important. So that's the outset of this. Now let's pivot to DeSantis. DeSantis was elected in 2018 by running an extraordinarily Trumpy campaign. This is the dude who ran the ads of his kids, you know, building a wall in their backyard or something like that. He was running against a candidate who was an avowed socialist, who was an African-American. And, you know, anytime a Republican is running against a Democratic candidate who is, who is African-American statewide, they're going to be accused of racism. DeSantis had a um, malapropism where he said, we don't want to, to monkey things up with socialism. The, the correct phrase is muck it up. There may be some regional variations there. I'm not, I'm not entirely up on that. But, of course, um, you know, this is then seen as a, a sort of a racist uh, thing, which I don't think it was. But obviously, you know, you, you can't fully know. But keep in mind, DeSantis is running as like the Trumpiest Trump in the history of Trump uh, in 2018, right? After governing as sort of a, a typical kind of club for growth, you know, conservative congressman, he gets elected. By the way, wins 20% of the African-American vote because he was a big booster of school choice. And then governs as sort of a sensible, pragmatic Florida Republican, which is to say conservative, but normal. Right? So he campaigned in a different way than he'd actually governed. But your out-of-state media, your national media, the last exposure they have to DeSantis is the 2018 campaign. They're not paying attention to the ins and outs of and minutiae of Florida politics because they're not in Florida for the most part. So they don't know that he's kind of governed in, in a way that Republicans have been governing in the state since Jeb Bush and that Floridian voters are generally pretty comfortable with. So this starts, DeSantis starts looking at some of the policies. Again, he is somewhat more limited in what he can do because the Florida governor doesn't have some of the powers that governors in states like New York do. The funny thing about states is that, in fact, they, they do have different levels of power that the governor has in each state, right? Not every state is a carbon copy of another. But he also kind of starts to, to look at the details of this, and, and he's a questioner of the idea that lockdown is going to fix this. You know, so he keeps the beaches open. His public health people are telling him, look, viruses don't spread as much if people are outside. You know, so so there are some restrictions, there's some, you know, guidelines about social distancing, all this kind of stuff. And he keeps the beaches, and people are freaking out because they're seeing people in Florida congregating in large groups, and the message that's sent is Florida is killing people. Okay? Now, DeSantis also 
has a very large elderly population. There's more old people per capita in Florida, uh, people over the age of 65, people over the age of 85, high-risk folks in Florida than in any other uh, of these states, and certainly more than New York. But DeSantis makes the decision that we are not going to send people back into nursing homes if they have COVID. We're going to keep them in the hospitals, right? Cuomo makes the opposite decision. Now, what causes this? Is this luck? Is this character? Is this a policy choice? Is it DeSantis has a certain amount of familiarity with the, the sort of uh, retirement community, nursing home stuff more in Florida? Is it the fact that as some have alleged Cuomo, Cuomo has, I mean, this is an allegation, it's, it's a fact, Cuomo has received a significant amount of money from the hospital associations and he didn't want them to be liable or to show his high of a death rate. We don't exactly know. It's, you know, worth mentioning also that Cuomo was not the only governor who made this decision. Tom Wolf made the same decision in, in Pennsylvania. Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Whitmer actually kept doing that policy, following that policy for a long time after Cuomo did. Okay. Some other democratic states, Colorado, I think did not. Connecticut, I think may not have. New Jersey did, right? So there's, there's this difference that emerges on that issue as well. What you find if you start tracking the numbers, which by the way, nobody is at this point, uh, is that when you start factoring out things like per capita, when you start factoring in for, th for things like, you know, areas where there's a lot of tourism tend to have higher caseloads in general than areas where there's not, that's, that's a trend that emerges, you know, across this thing. Florida is not actually doing demonstrably worse in terms of its, its hospitalization, death, and case rates than states that have different policies. Okay. But that emerges later. Now we start to get into the situation where DeSantis has been cast as the villain, right? DeSantis is bad. Florida is killing people. All the Republican governors are, are described as bad. Uh, Georgia, when they lifted some of their lockdowns, this was described as an experiment in human sacrifice by our elite media, who of course don't live there. And at the same time, Cuomo is lauded for his strict lockdown policies, which it is believed is saving people in New York. And Cuomo starts to get arrogant and get cocky. This is where character starts to come out. All politicians are by nature ambitious. If you're not ambitious, what are you doing running for political office? If you don't, if you don't want power, if you don't want to use power. Ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Some people are ambitious for, ambitious for power because they believe they can do good things with it. Or ambitious for power because they have a strong desire for service and they know that political power is a way to fulfill that. Cuomo is ambitious for a number of reasons. And his ambition and his entitlement, his sense that he's sort of above the law and above the normal rules of politics, really start to show themselves here. These are not new facts about Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo has always kind of been a, a figure known for intimidating. Um, he's not this sort of warm, cuddly figure that he's being cast as. He's a bully. He's a bruiser. You know, he, he kneecaps people. That's just his, his approach to politics. I mean, he's, a, he's a, a rough guy in the political arena. And he has a tendency to punch down, right? And he's very petty. Very, very petty. And so, you know, any, any, uh, any state governor that restricted anybody from New York, you know, he's looking for an opportunity to pay them back any chance he can get. So Cuomo starts to take a victory lap, 
especially in the summer when it looks like things are going down in New York. You know, and he starts to give all these press conferences where he's got, you know, charts and the boyfriend cliff and, you know, all these types of, of things, the, you know, COVID, Mount COVID or whatever. He's writing a book. He's getting a book deal. He eventually wins an Emmy. And very quietly in May, he changes the policy about sending people back to nursing homes if they're COVID positive from hospitals. The policy change in and of itself, I would say, is not what will eventually cause immortal wound for Cuomo. I, I will part company from, from some folks here on the right and say it's, it's not totally crazy in the midst of a crisis for somebody to try to figure out when you think there's going to be this massive surge in hospitals, how do we make sure that we have enough capacity? And, you know, within two months to figure out this didn't work, that this had caused potentially huge problems, and then to change course. And had, when asked about this, Cuomo said, look, we made a mistake. This was a policy. We thought there was going to be this massive surge. It turned out there wasn't. And so we, we made a mistake. We, we made a policy that caused more harm than good. And so we had to change that policy. And, you know, of course, it's horrible if people lost their lives. But we're, we're going to, you know, we, and we can't really do restitution for that. But that's on us. It's a mistake that we made in the midst of crisis. We take responsibility for it. We're going to own that. We're going to try to fix it for people's families in some way. It would have been different. But what we now know is that they lied about the number of people that died in nursing homes. They covered up the statistics of what happened. And it's almost always the cover-up that gets you in a situation like this. If you own the policy, own your mistakes, and move on, you survive. And it would have, you know, it, it probably, Cuomo wouldn't be in the situation that he's in now. Because some of these other things would not have come out. Right? Particularly some of these sexual harassment issues. Now, let's, you know, the, the, I don't want to minimize the seriousness of what's been alleged here, because in each of these cases, at a minimum, you have somebody who is acting boorishly and knowing that they'll get away with it because they're powerful. And at a maximum, in some of these cases, you have some pretty serious abuses of power by someone who is in power, who is abusing their power over subordinates in ways that are very troubling and create a troubling pattern of behavior that probably should be investigated because we don't know what else is, has been covered up in, in this you know time period. But does any of that come out if we don't have first the cover-up, if we don't have the exposure of what's happening in nursing homes, if we don't have the investigation open? I'm not so sure that it would. One of the things that Andrew Cuomo forgot in this whole process is that the reason he was being elevated was to be a foil to Donald Trump. Because the media and Democrats wanted somebody who was the anti-Trump. Somebody who was Trumpy enough that he could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump. Somebody who could be their version and hit back and be popular because of that and be elevated because of that. So what happens when Trump is gone? Well, then you have a guy who is an older, white, male, Democratic politician, not particularly beloved by progressives in his own state, who has an outsized status such that if his wings are not clipped, he could be a threat in 2024. So Cuomo, on January 21st, 
For ambitious progressive Democrats, Cuomo went from a useful hammer to beat their opposition with to a potential liability in the future. And very shortly after that, some of this stuff starts coming out. In other words, Cuomo forgot the first rule of politics, which is something that, ironically enough, anybody who interacted with him would have, would have known firsthand. Anybody who interacted with him would have known firsthand. There's no such thing as loyalty in politics. And when you're not useful anymore to groups of people, they move on. They move on to somebody else. And certainly, you can't be guaranteed their continued support and fidelity, particularly if you've done things that, that violate their rule. And Cuomo had certainly done things that violated their rules. And this is why, in particular, it's, it's karmic because of the, the fact that he's essentially getting, getting, got, getting got on Me Too charges, right? The movement that Democrats used, essentially tried to use as a cudgel to beat Trump and Republicans with, is now being turned against the hammer that they used Trump, they used to beat Trump with on COVID. Right? That is a that is a classic fortuna, right? The fortune and character, uh, the fortune that leads to your rise, when combined with your character, when that fortune turns, can lead to your demise, politically. So that is Cuomo. Now, what about DeSantis? Florida kind of chugs along. It's it's middle of the pack in terms of negative COVID outcomes. It's not the best. It's not the worst. It's actually pretty good per capita. But there is, there is essentially no benefit. So if you compare Florida to a, a state that locks it down, there's no noticeable difference in per capita COVID death rates, per capita COVID hospitalization rates, or per capita COVID case rates between those states. In other words, Florida gets the benefits economically of not ever being quite as locked down, but they did not pay the, the cost that would be assumed of lockdown of higher lives lost, et cetera, et cetera. As a result of this, and as a result of being relentlessly attacked by the negative, but negatively by particularly elite mainstream and, and legacy media, Ron DeSantis becomes in a position to be the new face of the Republican Party once Trump is gone. He's beloved enough by the Trumpists because they remember the, the 2018 campaign and because he's also been attacked by the same media that they believe has been persecuting Trump, right? People who are anti-Trumpists will recognize that you know, so so more Trump cautious people. If you look at DeSantis's record, it's pretty sensible mainstream conservative stuff. You know, the rhetoric is a little bit more Trumpian than they would like, but the record is not particularly out of the mainstream for most you know traditional conservatives who are maybe a little uncomfortable with Trump. DeSantis's record is, uh, rhetoric is tough, but it's also not to the same you know max level as Trump. He's very blunt in his confrontations with the media, but even conservatives that don't like Trump aren't the biggest fans of the, the left-wing media industrial complex, right? It's just, conservatives don't like the media. The, the water is wet, the Pope is Catholic, and conservatives think the media is, is against them, and it, it probably to a certain extent is, for cultural reasons as much as anything else. So DeSantis now finds himself in a position where if he doesn't screw up, right, if he maintains a steady hand on the ship of state down in Florida, wins re-election, and you know, kind of maintains his, his brand as somebody who's acceptable to the Trumpists, but also acceptable to non-Trumpy Republicans, he's in a really good position to actually be the Republican nominee in 2024. 
Uh, and that's going to be a very competitive position. By the way, the Florida Republican Party is extremely good at reaching out to Hispanic voters, both Cuban and non-Cuban. And Ron DeSantis has demonstrated in the past that he has some crossover appeal with African-Americans. You hold the Trumpy base and you expand on Trump's inroads in, in minorities in 2020, and you probably win the popular vote in 2024. I've been talking about this for months. So DeSantis is in an interesting position potentially to do that. What we don't know about DeSantis, you know, except for, for people who know him personally, is what is the content of his character in terms of his political leadership? How does he lead? What's his leadership style? What are the potential flaws? Because everybody's got uh, potential character flaws that he needs to watch out for, and how does he compensate for them? And then two, what kind of luck is he going to have between now and 2024? As we have learned from this podcast and comparing these two governors, a year or less is a lifetime in politics. Now, there are other examples of character and, and luck combining to um, raise people up or, or also prevent them from rising. You know, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, both of whom were running for president in 2016, through a combination of their own character and also the political fortunes of the circumstance, both of them are blocked by each other to a certain extent, by Donald Trump also to a certain extent. I think it is unlikely that either Cruz or Rubio is ever going to be president at this point. Not that their political careers are over, but it's, it's um, you know, Cruz has been damaged by several situations. He does not have a lot of friends in the party. And, you know, the, the Trumpy base will never forgive, I think, the vote your conscience thing that he said in, in the 2016 campaign. So he has put himself in a position where he doesn't really have a constituency in 2024 and beyond. You know, Rubio has, you know, tried to put himself in the in the center of wherever he thinks the Republican Party is at any given time. And I think that has been noticed, right? So he doesn't have a unique brand. And that's, that's dangerous, particularly if you're running for president. I think Josh Hawley, the jury's still out. He's made some missteps early on, but he, he is attempting to carve out a position for himself. The Democratic side, you know, the rise of AOC is, is definitely luck, right? AOC wins because she catches Joe, Joe Crowley napping because he doesn't work his district in a primary in the way that he would have needed to. If Joe Crowley had been on his game, we'd never have heard the name AOC, except as a footnote to somebody who lost a primary. But Crowley's not on his game. You know, the environment, the circumstances are just right. She rises. And she makes the most of that from a social media stardom perspective, right? But she's going to have very little to no policy impact because she's branded herself as more of a media figure. It also fits with her character. You know, she does the whole wide-eyed, breathless social media Instagram thing really well. Those, those types of folks tend not to get respect for their policy chops. And they tend not to be the kind of people that are moving legislation, right? So she's a show horse now, not a workhorse. That's her brand moving forward. And it's going to make it more challenging for her to move up the ladder. If she thinks that she's going to have a clear path for Senate, or she thinks that she's going to be able to run for governor in New York or anything like that, I think she's got a better chance of ending up, you know, hosting a late night show or, you know, hosting, hosting an hour on MSNBC than she does of actually getting elected to the Senate or, or elected governor. New York is a patronage-based state. It still is to a, to a large extent. There's political machines that are very powerful that want stuff. And they find a way to get it. And that's how the game is played. And she doesn't play that way. 
So that's that's another factor that's that's going to kind of determine how things go, right? You know, Kamala Harris has been lucky. She's been extremely lucky. Uh, fortune has favored her over the past year or two, but there are vulnerabilities for her. She's never been tested in a race where she's at the top of the ticket and she has to win swing voters. Her appeal among African-Americans has actually also never been tested. It's been assumed, but it hasn't really been tested. Right? Keep in mind, she was attached to the guy who actually won the South Carolina primary. The guy who actually won every primary where African-Americans were a meaningful factor in the Democratic nominating contest of 2020. Okay, Kamala Harris was polling at 6% of the vote among African-Americans when Joe Biden was leading among African-Americans in late 2019. This is why she had to drop out of the race, because the assumption was she was going to clean up among black voters because Obama did. And the reality is Obama was a remarkable political talent and Kamala Harris just isn't. She's just not. Okay, Barack Obama had the ability to speak in the tones of white progressivism, but he had enough cachet with the African-American community because he had built it up in Chicago over years and years. And he knew how to speak to that audience. It was something that he was familiar with. And so he was able to at least you know, pull to a tie with Hillary, who had a lot of support in 20, uh, 28, 2008, among African-Americans, you know, particularly among that traditional machine demographic. And then absolutely cleaned up among young millennial white progressive voters, right? That's that's the secret to Obama's success, right? Kamala could could probably the white progressive base is going to love her, but I'm not so sure that she gets where she needs to go, even in a Democratic primary with Hispanic and African American voters. That's untested. So if, as I suspect, Biden doesn't run again in 2024, does she get the nomination handed to her? And if she does, what does that mean for the Democrats in the 2024 election? Because then you'll have a nominee who's actually never had to win over voters in her own right in all 50 states. And I'm not actually convinced that she's as good of a political talent as her boosters think that she is. So, you know, is that a character issue? Is that a luck issue? She's been lucky. She's been fortunate. But fortune is not something that you can count on in politics. It's fickle. And so it comes back to character, it comes back to discipline, it comes back to preparation, so that when the luck turns against you, you are in a position to correctly discern your path forward and to handle situations that come up, to keep steady, to make the most of bad situations and find opportunities where there are, are challenges and overcome those challenges. It requires virtue. It requires a certain type of character. And if you don't have that character, then when fortune turns against you, you will suffer the consequences. And suffer consequences that are generally created by your own failings and flaws of character. And so that's the last thing that I will say about this. Going back to the Greeks, which we talked about earlier. One of the, uh, the, the pieces of wisdom from the Oracle of Delphi is the idea of know yourself, know thyself. There are similar proverbs, of course, in scripture about the need to, to know the human heart. There's a great deal on, on that, not only in Proverbs, but also in the letters of St. Paul. And 
that's important in politics. You have to know who you are, not only in terms of knowing your own character flaws so that you can compensate for them, but also know who you are uh, so that you're not out of position in terms of, of trying to brand yourself to be something that you're not. You know, Andrew Cuomo trying to be a warm, cuddly messenger of hope was never going to work in the long run because it's just not who he is. And so he ended up in a position where he's out of position for his, his brand. He had a lot of goodwill that he hadn't earned just because he was in the right place at the right, at the right time. And he tried to immediately capitalize on that in ways that have come back to bite him. I don't know if he's going to resign or not, but I, I will tell you that this is his last term as governor. There's no way he gets reelected. And there's no way that the Democratic machines don't push him out by this time in 2022. And I would be surprised if we're still talking about him as governor at the end of April. Because it's really hard to survive when as many people have called for your head as, as currently have. And the worst case scenario if you're Cuomo is getting impeached by your own majorities in the, the House and, and, and Senate in New York. By the way, also keep in mind, Cuomo is extremely petty. So if Democrats do in fact start impeachment proceedings against him, or even if they don't at this point, look for him to nuke some Democratic priorities from the House and the Senate just because he can, from, from, from the Assembly and the State Senate, just because he can, and because he is that petty. You know, is Andrew Cuomo petty enough to blow up the budget because Democrats are coming after him because of his sexual harassment stuff? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so the fireworks in New York politics are far from over. In fact, I would say they are just beginning. And so for Ron DeSantis, the, the main lesson from this is to say, okay, you are currently in a position where you're riding high. What are the vulnerabilities? What are your own personal vulnerabilities? And what are the tides of fortune that could come in and, if you're not prepared, sideswipe you? Right? Because you're in a strong position right now, but it's hard to maintain, maintain that over a long period of time. If you were to ask me in early 2013 who was going to be the Republican nominee in 2016, nobody would have said Donald Trump. Okay, so it's a long game. And if you're DeSantis, you don't want to act like you've got things in the bag. Let's say for any politician, you have to start with that sense of self-knowledge, know your own character, know your, know your own weaknesses, compensate for them, and be prepared. Be focused, be disciplined, be prepared. And don't worry so much about the momentary riptides of political fortune because it, it will rise and fall moments will come but if you handle things well and you handle and you take care of your business well eventually the tide that goes out comes back in and so you need to be in position for that all right that's going to be a wrap for this episode please remember to rate subscribe and tell all of your friends about blind politics with dr nolte recorded a fair number of interview episodes recently but if we can find more guests to bring onto the podcast uh, we most certainly will do that. I'm not sure if this is going to drop before or after this happens, but just to let everybody know, there is an event coming up. Uh, th there are a couple of events coming up in uh, the week of March 22nd. Uh, Monday, March 22nd, we are having, uh, an, I'm hosting an event with Governor Bob McDonald on COVID and federalism. So how different states responded to the COVID-19 crisis. And then um, on March 23rd, Regent is, uh, RSG is doing a, um, a large election integrity event um, should be interesting. Lots of discussions about HR1, lots of discussions about voter ID and, and some of the implications of that. Some interesting speakers. Our dean has been very active in, in putting uh, that one together. So uh, both of those will be coming out soon from the Robertson School. So keep your eyes peeled for both of those events. And then moving forward, and I'll be advertising this a little bit more, uh, we're going to have some other good RSG events. We'll have one on the long telegram featuring 
frequent flyer on the podcast, Dr. Josh Hasty, And then I will be moderating an event sort of toward the end of the uh, spring semester on Biden's first hundred days. So all of that is, is forthcoming and we'll provide more info on some of those events, I think, uh, via the Blind Politics Facebook page. So check back there if you were potentially interested in, in some of those. Otherwise, thank you for listening. Have a great uh, rest of your day. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.